hey, this is Ed. So this is a podcast, is that right? This is. Okay. We're officially podcasting right now. That's awesome. This is Straight from the Cutter's Mouth. Welcome to Straight from the Cutter's Mouth, a retinue podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jay Schreeder. Today on episode 279, I have the pleasure of being joined by Ms. Joy Woodkey from the American Academy of Ophthalmology. She's been making the circuit talking about the ENM changes that kicked in in 2021. And as we head past the first month of the year, it's a good time to review and make sure we're using our coding appropriately, our documentation appropriately, and adjusting to these changes. We review uh, the you know, big changes in terms of what they mean in terms of necessity for each code. We talk about some case scenarios where you might use one code or the other, and we also discuss how to use iCodes in conjunction with these ENM codes. Remember, you can find a link in the uh, episode description to um, claim CME credits in the American Academy of Ophthalmology website. Uh, you can claim CME credits for this episode and many other episodes there. And relevant financial disclosures are listed in the episode description. Straight from the Cutter's Mouth is now happy to be joined by someone who's going to talk to us a little bit about these coding changes that are rolling out in 2020 and have already rolled out uh, across retina practices not medical practices, ophthalmology practices throughout the United States. So I have the pleasure of being joined by uh, Ms. Joy Woodkey. Ms. Woodkey, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Just give our listeners some background. So how did you come to be involved? You, you've gone, kind of done the circuit in a way. You, you've spoken at the Academy about this, ASRS. Um, what are your credentials and background in coding? And, and how did this become to be a topic of interest for you? Sure. So my background is I was a practice administrator for 30 years in ophthalmology practice that included retina, comprehensive, cornea, and uveitis. Um, but for the last 10 years, I also was a CodeQuest instructor for the American Academy of Ophthalmology. Most recently, over a year ago, I became full-time staff with American Academy of Ophthalmology as their coding and practice management executive. Uh, so I really enjoy educating physicians especially retina physicians, being that I have a little bit of experience working in a retina practice. That's great. We're going we're gonna to draw on that experience. So let's start with things that maybe some of our listeners saw your other talks, but some of them maybe have not. So, so let's start with what were the changes, right? So what, what, everyone keeps talking about these changes. If I was talking to a colleague who had been under a rock for the last month and I had to explain to them what's changed, what was the big change on January 1st, 2021? Sure. So first of all, the elimination of CPT code 99201, which was the level one new patient ENM code. And this code actually had really low utilization in ophthalmology. And the medical decision-making was the same as 99202. So it really became obsolete. But the most significant change effective January 1, 2021, is that for office and other outpatient services, the history and the exam elements are no longer used in code selection. Instead, document a medically appropriate history and exam. So this means no more counting HPI elements or the review of systems passing social history elements are no longer required, just document as medically necessary. And that's the same for the exam elements. We're counting each of these elements as a requirement, um, nor the documentation of the patient's mental assessment unless it's medically necessary. So the bottom line is the document documentation should reflect the medically relevant history and exam as determined by a physician. The level of exam will then be determined based on the documentation of medical decision-making or total physician time on the date of the encounter. Perfect. 
So let's put that in tangible terms, right? Because I think the most common question you've worked with retina doctors is retina doctors are like, you know, I'm busy. I'm trying to take care of these patients. I'm trying to do these injections. I've got enough in my head. What do I need to do, right? So you, let's talk about things that maybe you don't have to do anymore from a billings perspective, right? So you talked about the, the classic HPI points. And so most DMRs now, Epic, MDI, whatever practices are using, the doctor has been kind of trained that there's certain elements they need to fill in to document that they had that interaction with the patient that collected that information. Is that still in she reference that is not considered or weighted the same anymore? It's not as necessary because it's really about your decision making. So the question they're going to ask, which it seems like the answer is obvious, is do they need to still fill in those elements? And does that change whether they're using I codes or ENM codes? And that's a great question. We hear it a lot. And, and, and the bottom line is only document what you see to be medically necessary for the history and the exam. Um, you should, I should mention though, if you're reporting any mixed quality measures mm -hmm. that you need to document specific history or exam elements for that reporting, for example, documentation of current medications in the medical record or the tobacco cessation quality measure, those documentation elements for the history or the exam should be included. But besides that, it's up to the physician to document what's medically necessary to the history and exam. And this allows the physician then focus on the medical decision-making component. And that's how the co-selection will be determined. But it's also important to mention the medical decision-making components did have an update as far as the definition. There's still the three category definitions, the number and complexity of problems addressed at the encounter, amount and or complexity of data to be reviewed and analyzed, and the risk of complications and morbidity or mortality of patient management. But each of these three components had slight changes to the definitions and how you use those components to select the ENM level of service. So let's get into that. Because again, the, the follow-up question for review providers is like, okay, Joy, tell me, what am I writing, right? So what is, does my language change or do I assume, let's, because we're all, that the insurer or if I'm ever audited or if there's internal audits of my institution, do I assume that they can read that and figure out the complexity if I just do my normal documentation? Or is there some sort of phraseology that I should use to make it clear what I'm doing. So in the past, you talked about time as a component. People used to document, you know, there's a certain phrase people would say, you know, I'd spent this much time reviewing blah, 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 blah. It seems like this is a little more nebulous, which is good because it gives physicians more freedom and flexibility to do what they think is medically necessary and document they felt something was a certain complexity or necessity. But is there some, is there a key phraseology they need to use for coders internally, externally to identify this? Or is the assumption just that how, like, how is that complexity going to be defined, I guess, is the real question. Um, is, is there some sort of guide? Or it sounds like, again, they're kind of giving some leeway for interpretation here. I think I would use the final determination table for medical decision making as my guide. And consider the three separate components. So first of all, problems. What are the problems that you address today during the encounter? And then think of the severity of each of those problems. And the words and the definitions that the AMA uses are sometimes a little different than what we may think. They use words, of course, stable, chronic, undiagnosed new problem with uncertain prognosis. But sometimes the difference between the moderate and high level of medical decision-making, for example, one or more chronic illness with exasperation progression. But then to bump to the high level, it would be one or more clinical illnesses with severe 
exasperation or progression. Now the difference between the moderate and high with severe would mean that the patient need hospitalization. So probably more likely in the moderate category for the retina specialist, you're gonna find chronic illness with progression or exasperation. So documentation of that chronic illness and really showing that it's actually progressing will really point the auditor in the direction that this is a moderate level of medical decision-making. But in that high category, it, you would meet that requirement with a one or chronic illness or injury that poses a threat to life or bodily function. And of course, in retina, that could be a MACON retinal detachment that needs treatment in the near term. And the definition of near term is emergency surgery today or tomorrow within the next 24 hours. Um, so considering what is my problem, what is the severity, and what do I need to do to treat that patient and the timing? Is it urgent? or emergent. Now that data category is a little bit, is much different actually than the 1997 guidelines. And when we're thinking about the data that's reviewed and analyzed, it has different components. And some of it has to do with review of a unique test or order of a unique test. And it's important for us to point out that that does not include any tests that the retina specialist orders um, and interprets today that are separately billable by either the retina specialist today or has been previously billed or anyone within your practice. So tests that are separately billable do not count, but this could be an outside test or lab that has been ordered. So considering the different types of data tests that you're reviewing or ordering outside your practice, also the, uh, the necessity to review an external chart note that contributes to medical decision-making today. Now we get a lot of question about one of these components in this data category, discussion management with an external physician. And our frequently asked question is, if I send a letter to the referring physician, does that count? And it does not count. In this category, what they're looking for in the chart documentation would be a two-way conversation between the retina specialist and the referring physician, for example, and the discussion of the patient management, documentation of that phone call with that other physician. Now the risk category, I always look at what are you doing for the patient today? You've identified the problem, how severe it is. You've identified any of the data that you've documented or any additional chart notes that you've reviewed, but how are you treating the patient today? And looking at that moderate category for retina specialists, there's a few options. First of all, prescription drug management. And prescription drug management oftentimes can be met ordering medication for anti-digest treatment. Also decision for minor surgery with identified risk factors or elective major surgery without identified risk factors. Now we should discuss the risk factors definition by the AMA. Elective major surgery without identified risk factors would be risk factors in addition to the normal risks associated with these types of surgery. So all surgeries have risk and that's not what they're talking about. This would be surge, I mean risk in addition to the normal risk associated with that procedure. Interesting. So, so let, let you, you kind of touched on specific examples. So let's just start like new patient, right? Level five type of things you said, urgent, or if you're, if you're going based on risk and complexity, urgency, you talk about urgent emergency. So things like a Mac on RD, um, things such as a foreign body that needs to go to surgery and endophthalmitis that needs surgery, a ruptured globe. Those are pretty clearly fit in the definition of a level five evaluation, assuming you did all the other things that you would need to do. A MAC off RDU schedule for a week, a MAC whole, something that's not quite as urgent, 
would fall seems more appropriately in the level four category, all other things being equal. And then, like you said, if it's something that is not a progressive kind of condition, right? So patient comes in and they have dry age-related macular degeneration and it's a stable, it's the first time you've seen them, but you're going to follow that patient periodically every six to 12 months. That is going to, depending on that, that may be somewhere between a three and a four, depending on what you do. Am I misinterpreting or missing anything in terms of defining those? Obviously we don't want to box people in, but I'm just kind of trying to think of examples here. Absolutely. So the cases that you were reviewing in general, that would be the category that they would typically fall in. I do always say though, you know, some of these cases that we review aren't always the same. You know, you have a patient in low category presenting with a diagnosis, like you said, with, with AMD, but there could be other additional medical decision-making components that might not be as typical that you may see with a dry AMD patient. So you want to always review each of those categories. But yes, a patient with AMD that you uh, encourage A-RED treatment, A-RED's treatment and Amsler grid follow up in six months, that would fall in that low category. Uh, and the other cases that you reviewed, those would be either high or moderate. Uh, and, and the most important thing is to make sure and or two of three. So it's easy to think about how did I meet that problems addressed at the encounter, but then what am I actually doing for the patient today? And I think that's really what really encompasses that full level of medical decision-making and leads to the proper code. Right. And, and, and that's where you have to document is also, even if you did a procedure, maybe that's where the documentation in your progress note or your note of this is the problem and this is what I need to do for it. You know, um, for example, a laser for a retinal tear versus um, observing, you know, a, a stable retinal hole. Um, let's talk about non-established patients. Like, I mean, excuse me, non-new patients. It's all established patients, right? So now we're talking about a different set of codes, right? We're talking about 99, um, am I 213, 99214, 99215. These are the established 345, I think. I did that off the top of my head. Um, and then you have your established I codes, 92012, 92014, uh, intermediate and comprehensive. And those are kind of the five codes. There may be scenarios where you may use an established one or two, but in retina, at least you're probably going to fall into one of those five codes. So again, we can't answer this for people and we'll explain why in a second. But the first question people are going to ask is, well, should I be using I codes or ENM codes? And what would you say to a doctor who asked you that? Right. So it's going to vary based on the scenario, and then it may change based on fee schedules. So let's take a look. So first of all, you mentioned established patient levels for ENM, and we're still going to identify the level of medical decision making. If it's moderate, it's going to be 99214. If it's low, 99213. So we're still using that low, moderate, and high medical decision making to choose either three, four, or five. Um, still using two of three, meaning two of three of the medical decision making components. Um, but, but what's interesting is with these changes with ENM, the physician is focusing on medical decision making, sometimes not completing a comprehensive exam because it's not medically necessary. Hmm. Now, the iVisit codes, the documentation guidelines did not change. So they're the same as they've always been, which is a CPT code definition. And with the intermediate and comprehensive I codes, it focuses on the history, which is just very vague, general medical observation, chief complaint. But the most important part for a comprehensive eye visit code, you must meet 12 exam elements right. to document those 12 exam elements is medically necessary. And sometimes you might've just seen the patient. It's not necessary to complete a comprehensive eye code, but with moderate medical decision-making, you could build a higher level with ENM as I-9214. 
So thinking about the difference of these codes and documentation, I visit codes focus more on the exam elements. And then with the E&M codes, you're focusing on medical decision-making. Now, as far as which codes pay higher, and this gets a little bit challenging. So the RVU values for the established patient E&M codes did increase, and that's the total RVU value. Across the country, taking a look at your Medicare fee schedules, you're gonna find that the total allowable is probably higher for the 99214 compared to the comprehensive 92014. But there is an exception. There are some locations in the country that have what's called a higher gypsy, which is the geographic component of the fee schedule. For example, San Francisco, or there's parts of New Jersey. And because the iVisit codes actually have a higher practice expense value, they may actually have just a few more cents or a dollar more as far as the final determination for Medicare fee schedule. So we're asking practices to look at your Medicare fee schedules that were just published about two weeks ago and to confirm what your allowable is for the iVisit codes and the E&M codes. And then make sure your documentation meets requirement for each of those codes and then choose based on either the highest allowable or based on documentation. That's that's such a terrific point about the differences in documentation because I think that's one thing that's been kind of lost is, as you said, the iCode definitions and requirements didn't work, did not change. So in a way it depends what you're doing, right? So if you are doing all of those 12 points, but maybe you're not dealing with a moderate situation, then you'd be better off with a comprehensive I code in many instances than using a level three and using a level four may not be appropriate in that instance. On the other hand, as you said, if you aren't hitting all those points, but you've done something that's moderate or even high complexity, let's say an established patient comes back and they have an acute issue that needs surgery the next day, then you're much better off and you're going to be more appropriate using the ENM four or five than going to comprehensive, it sounds like. Absolutely. I think you summed it up correctly. I think that it's going to be case by case. And I think that the retina specialist needs to look at their documentation, what's medically necessary, what did I do today, and then choose the appropriate code based on documentation. And then also, of course, considering the fees. So let's talk about another scenario, which didn't change. But again, people always ask this question because retina specialists are always worried about it. So the most common established patient scenario, let's say in a busy retina practice is an injection patient, right? So patient is coming in to get injections. The first visit, we talked about new patients, how to evaluate that, but what to do on subsequent visits and the infamous question about the 25 modifier, right? 25 modifier, which by definition says you did a separate ENM service for a separate sort of, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember the definition off the top of my head, but it, there's a, a whole definition, but essentially saying that it, it, what it does is it allows you it's to capture both a visit, ENM visit, as well as the injection service that was required, that was provided, excuse me. So first of all, what are the appropriate instances to use this modifier? And has this changed at all with these changes or is it still the same Maybe just the documentation you need to build that level has changed, but the, the use of the 25 and when you actually capture the visit is the same. I mean, what, what is your kind of feeling on this? Right. This is an important topic, and I really appreciate you bringing it up because with changes with documentation, we think there can be other impact on other documentation requirements. And we're considering the 25 modifier. That definition has not changed which is significantly separately identifiable valuation and management could also be an I code performed the same day as a minor surgery. 
Now in retina, this is typically of course, anti-VEGF treatment the same day as an exam. Um, we should consider the exam and look at the documentation and ask yourself this question. Although medically necessary, if the exam was performed to confirm the need for the injection, it is not billable. Mm -hmm. What we're looking for is something significantly separately identifiable. And there's lots of examples in retina. The patient may have a, a medically relevant diagnosis in the fellow eye that you need to evaluate today. Oftentimes the patient has bilateral disease, bilateral wet macro degeneration, you're treating one eye, but the other eye you're still managing and it's me medically necessary to evaluate. There can also be new symptoms and the patient comes in along with their exam for anti-VEGF treatment, new symptoms and the patient has a new diagnosis of epiretinal membrane. Well, that's obviously an appropriate use of 25 modifier or the patient may have other symptoms that they present today or something else changes. That does meet the 25 modifier definition. Or if there's a significant change in the way that you're treating that patient with anti-VEGF treatment, and that may then qualify for the 25 modifier. But this is such an important point to continue to discuss as we talk about changes with the mm. because the 25 modifier hasn't changed. Right. So we're gonna continue to look at our documentation and make sure that what is significantly separately identifiable is very clear to the auditor. Uh, that's a wonderful, wonderful explanation. I've learned a lot from everything you said. I only have a couple follow-up questions, uh, and there, maybe you covered this, maybe I just missed it. But so the, the first question, when you talked about low, moderate, high, so if you're saying a new patient, for example, or establishing has high because you are choosing to take someone to, you're not choosing, you're saying this person needs to have an urgent emergent procedure to avoid bodily injury, in this case, blindness and in, in what we deal with. Um, the use of, for example, so does that have to be a major surgery, right? So, and major surgeries carry a 90 day post-operative period. We think of major surgery, we think of retinal detachment repair, 67108, something like that. But what about a retinal tear? A retinal tear, retinopexy, also prophylaxis retinal attachment can carry a 90 day post-operative period. Does that also imply high or is that more appropriate in the moderate given that yes, you are intervening within that 24 hour period but is it going to be looked at as saying, well, yes, it was deemed urgent emergent, but is not the same severity as a retinal detachment? Right, and that's an excellent question. And we get a lot of questions surrounding minor versus major surgery. Now we all know in coding, the difference between minor and major surgery has to do with global grade. So right. minor surgery, zero or 10 day global, major 90 day global. But the AMA has confirmed that in this moderate category or when we're considering risk, Minor surgery or major surgery would be determined based on what the physician would deem as major or minor surgery. Now, I would also go as far as saying that if you were to survey all retinal specialists, would they consider this type of laser to be major or minor? Interesting. And what I hear from most retina specialists about lasers is that would be considered that moderate level of medical decision making. And then also, I really appreciate what you're saying about urgent versus emergent. You know, identifying your surgeries, even if we're performing today, is considered urgent 
or it would be classified like that emergency surgery when you're taking the patient today for a MAC on retinal detachment. Are you canceling tonight's dinner, uh, dinner plans to go to surgery to, to repair retinal detachment? That's much different than we're just going to repair the, the, the laser. We're going to repair the retinal detachment or tear today in office with a laser. Sure. So those are typically considered that moderate medical decision-making. And again, minor versus major would be based on what the physician would, would determine at that level of surgery. Which is super helpful because you talked about intravitreal injection is a minor procedure with zero global day period, with no global period. But an intravitreal injection for anti-VEGF, I don't think any of us would call it as emergent or something that needs to be done right away. But if it's an endophthalmitis case that needs tap an injection and you're billing for the injection, that may actually fit into that high category Again, if you depending on the severity of endophthalmitis versus most times when you're doing an injection, it doesn't fall in the category. So it seems like they are allowing some, again, like putting a little more power in the physician's hands in terms of making those decisions. Yes, that's correct. And, you know, in talking about the endophthalmitis case, you know, the patient that has this um, emergent, very severe illness. And today you're doing a vitreous tap intervitreal injection and may even be taking the patient to the OR in the near term. Um, but, you know, that treatment, that, that vitreous tap, of course, is a major surgery, um, but then you're considering this an emergent procedure, so that, that may qualify more in that high category. Um, but an intravitreal injection, if it's considered minor, in that moderate category, if we're using that definition, um, it would have to have additional risk factors that were over and above the typical risk factors for intravitreal injection. But what does qualify is that prescription drug management. As a retina specialist is determining the type of anti-VEGF medication that this patient needs as an injection, that's prescription drug management or changing the type of medication from one to the other, that's prescription drug management. Now, when we're considering, can I bill for the visit today? If we're continuing, we're confirming the need for the injection, we already know that's not bill with 25 modifier. We're looking for something significantly separately identifiable. And at what level is that exam, that, that medically necessary exam of the fellow I, for example. Mm -hmm. So some monthly visits may fall into that moderate category, but some monthly visits may fall into the low category based on what you are evaluating today. And then some monthly visits, of course, don't meet the requirement for 25 modifier. So my last question, and I'm sure other listeners have questions. I'm sure you're getting inundated with these questions. And this is a very specific example. Does the binocularity or monocularity of a patient have any impact, right? So we, clinically, sometimes we treat things more urgently or more seriously. We obviously think any eye is important, but if it's the patient's only seeing eye, or maybe they don't even have another eye because it's been removed for some other reason in the past. We often will weight that with more urgency, emergent kind of intervention and attitude. Does that ever, I'm just curious, does that ever play a role? So like if you're looking from a documentation standpoint, I've always wondered the opposite, which is sometimes you can't even document anything in the fellow eye because there is no fellow eye. It's a prosthesis or there's nothing to see in a dilated exam. And then you're just documenting there's no view. Do either of those play an impact? So like if you can't document findings for the fellow eye, does it ever bring down your level, either using eye codes or ENM? And conversely, if there isn't a fellow eye, but you're doing something more urgently because of that reason, does that bring up your complexity in any way? 
Right. That's a very interesting question. So, so first of all, yes, it may impact the fact that you aren't evaluating another diagnosis today. There's, you know, there's nothing really medically relevant in the fellow eye to evaluate. Um, but there could be other diagnoses today besides the reason why you're injecting the patient uh, with anti-VEGF treatment. Um, there could be, for example, like I mentioned, a, a new MAC hole, for example, then of course that would meet the 25 modifier. But what's interesting about your scenario is the patient has one eye and the patient needs surgery today. And you're gonna actually perform that surgery more urgently, or it's now increased the level of risk. This is, right. a, this is right. in addition to the normal risk, right? So this could qualify in certain circumstances as elective uh, major surgery risk. with additional risk factors, because this is a one-eyed patient and we need to uh, treat this patient more emergently because of their, their one eye. And, and that we ensure that patient does not lose any more sight. And so I would just simply document that as additional risk factors due to the fact that this patient um, and the reason why that we're treating the patient more emergent. Beautiful. I mean, I understand. I don't think I understood it before. I can't say I understand all of it, but I understand at least half of it. Um, you made that very, very simple. Um, anything else you want to say before we sign off? Anything else that's come up that people have asked that maybe I didn't cover? Anything else you'd want to tell retina specialists out there who are listening? Well, I think that we continue to get questions. And I know as we continue to transition to these new guidelines, we're here to help you at the American Academy of Ophthalmology. So if you have questions regarding these changes, we have a specific email address for retina specialists. It's retinapm at aao.org. So go ahead and send your questions. We'll be happy to answer them. We love these scenarios, just like you were presenting today, that are very unique to retina. Uh, and also, we have additional information on our website at aoo.org em, including an online tutorial and workbook and frequently asked questions related to these changes. And what we'll do, um, we will put a link to that in the episode description for everyone listening. We will also put an email link there that you can click on. So if you need to send questions in, you have that freely available in case you missed it when she said it. So. Ms. Wilkie, thanks so much for taking the time. I know you're really busy. I think our listeners, I definitely appreciate it. I think our listeners will love this. And um, maybe we come back in a few months if there are more questions and things come up, we can always come back. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. As always, you can find this episode and all our prior episodes on our website, retinapodcast.com. That's R-E-T-I-N-A podcast.com. You can find all 279 episodes there sorted by category. Remember that you can sign up on the website to get email updates on the most recent episodes as they release weekly. You can also find our episodes in your Apple podcast or Android podcast app on your mobile device. We are on Facebook and on Twitter at Retina Podcast. And to uh, contact us directly, you can email me at retinapodcast.gmail.com. You can use the contact us form on the website or use any of our social media avenues. Uh, we love feedback. Any feedback you have is always helpful as we get better and stronger for the future. Many thanks to Ms. Joy Woodkey again for her time and expertise. Thanks to Drs. Michael Benincasa, Angela Chang, and Louis Kai for preparing this podcast, social media, and production. And thank you again, listeners, for what you do on a daily basis, the articles you read and publish, and the conversations you inspire here. This is Jay Schreeder signing off. Feeling. This is straight from the cutter's mouth. <laughs> <laughs>